All right, our study today is uh, entitled Behemoth, which I'm, uh, Behold Behemoth, which I made with you. And uh, it's uh, verses 15 through 24, the last half of the uh, 40th chapter of Job. And there's quite a bit of technical information in today's study. So I'm going to uh, skip over the many of the technicalities which are in the notes just for, for the sake of time. We're, we've got these time constraints. So I'm just going to give you definitions and try to move along so that it doesn't become boring, number one, and so that uh, also that you get uh, get the message. You can get bogged down in all the little details to the point that you lose the message, and I want to try to avoid that. So bear with me as we get into today's study. But there are a lot of mistranslations in this chapter of Job, and I don't know how many there will be in the next chapter, but boy, it really is revealing when you do see what's behind uh, the words that are there that, that have been mistranslated. Okay, let's just read the verses and then we'll get into our study. Verse 15 through 24. Behold now behemoth which I made with you. He eats grass as an ox. Lo now his strength is in his loins and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His stones, his bones are strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food for all the beasts of the field play. He lies under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fins. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him. Behold, he drinks up a river and hastes a knot. He trusts he can drop Jordan into his mouth. He takes it with his eyes. His nose pierces through snares. All right. uh, Through Job, God has been showing us how futile it is to contend with our Maker. He's revealed to us that everything that happens, the good and the evil, are all his works. He tells us right here in this book of Job that it was his hand that made the crooked serpent for the very purpose of being a crooked serpent. We've all been given a will, and he makes this clear in the book of Job here too, but no one in the universe has a will that is free from God's will and what God is doing. Instead, the will which we have is in reality being influenced, directed, and worked, to use a biblical word, after the counsel of his own will. It's not a struggle for God to work all things, because that's who he is. All things are of him. It pleased him that all things be accomplished through his son. And uh, here are the verses that bring that out. His spirit garnished the heavens, his hand, his hand formed the crooked serpent. Uh, Job 26.13 uh, 1 Corinthians 8.6 To us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things. Not just good things, of whom are all things. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Not just good things, all things. And we by him. And then Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20. Please the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace by the, through the blood of his cross by him. To reconcile all things to himself. By him I say whether they be things in heaven. Earth or things in heaven. Now Job 
back then knows nothing of the Father. He's never heard of the Father. You know, it's not a concept that even is in his mind. To him, it's just God. So while he serves as a type of God's elect, the truth is that Job did not know Christ or his Father. It's just a type of that, of those who do. But it happens that the Father's Christ, with whom he is dealing, uh, is Christ himself. And it's Christ himself who now continues to grill Job. Verse 15. Behold now behemoth, which I made with you. He eats grass as an ox. Now, here's Job, uh, the uh, Strong's definition for behemoth. It's the plural of, uh, of another word, and I'm not even going to bother giving you the uh, number there. But uh, the, the definition, Strong's definition, not, not the Bible definition, but Strong's, kind of like the word aeon, you know, says that it's an, uh, a water ox, a hippopotamus, or a Nile horse. But he, he admits that it's the plural of 929, H929, the Hebrew word 929. And when you look at that word, it appears 193 times. It's translated as behemoth one time. One time. I mean, uh, translated several times, but it's behemoth very few times. But 193 times it's translated. I mean, it, it, the, the, the singular of the word, which is behemoth, is 136 times. Behemoth itself is the plural of this word behemoth. And when you read the 136 entries, it's nearly always translated beast. So that word is, is, is defined as a large quadruped or an animal, a beast, sometimes it's translated cattle. Whatever this particular beast is, the Lord tells us it eats grass and he tells us that, it, that he made the beast with mankind. Behold now behemoth which I made with you, he eats grass as an ox. So the two spiritual messages that we get out of that verse is that first it's a beast, and the second is that it eats grass. And eating grass, in spiritual terms, is the same as eating dust. Genesis 3.14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and dust will you eat all the days of your life. Meaning that Satan is going to have you and me for lunch. The old serpent, Satan the devil, eats dust, and behemoth eats grass, and both typify the flesh. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth, of the ground, and breathed into his breath, nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Isaiah 46, 40 verse 6, a voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All gra- field is gra- all flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. 1 Peter 2-24, all flesh is grass, all the glory of man is as the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower thereof falls away. So behemoth has uh, mankind for lunch, just as our flesh causes us to do what we would not do. It's just that's how he has us for lunch. Romans 7, verses 18 through 20. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. Now Paul is talking about in the flesh. But he, de- he tells us in the next chapter, which no one seems to notice, or so many people don't, when they want to justify continuing in sin, that Paul says he no longer walks in the flesh. 
verse 20 here. Now, if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So, sin is in behemoth when we are in the flesh. But then he goes on to tell us more about this particular beast. This is the Lord talking to Job. Verse 16. Lo now. His strength is in his loins. Lo is just an old English word for look. Look now. His strength is in his loins and his force is in the navel of his belly. Now this is a terrible translation and we need to find out what God is actually saying. Now his strength is in his loins is true. Of almost any beast. A horse, a cow, or anything. You know, they've got incredible strength in their back legs there. There's no doubt that the very power, this is a very powerful beast that God is discussing with us through Job to tell us something about ourselves. He tells us his force is in the navel of his belly. Well, that's, that's not a good translation, and we need to know what it actually says. So when we look up the Hebrew word which translated force in this verse, we find out that it actually means... Uh, uh, here's, here's the definition. From the same as H205, which means ability, power, wealth. And it's translated as force and goods and might and substance and strength. But when we look up 205, the word that it comes from, that word that's there, the word force is 202. It's pronounced one, if you want to use the Hebrew pronunciation pronounced like we would use the word one, but it's O-N. When we look up 205, where it comes from, we find that it's from an unused root, perhaps meaning properly to pant. And uh, hence to exert oneself usually in vain. Strictly nothingness. uh, Also trouble, vanity, wickedness. But uh, this, this root word, 205, from which 202 is taken, uh, appears 79 times in the Old Testament. And when we look at it, just as always is the case, you know, when you've just got one word translated, when you've got it translated in one place just a very few times, and then you go look at the root word and it's translated, it's in there a lot of times and translated entirely differently, then you know you've got a problem in the translation. Now this this root word, alvin, as, as opposed to Alvin, is, uh, is 79 times, and out of those 79 times, the most common translation is iniquity. So, it's, it just really changes the tone of the verse. Uh, and, the, and the other times that it's not translated iniquity, it's wickedness or wicked or unrighteous. Anyway, you get the, you get the point there. Let's go on down and, and uh, see the difference. Unjust is one of them there. So it's, 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 it's got a very vain, a very negative connotation, but most often just the thought of iniquity. So clearly the root of this word, translated force, forces in his navel actually means iniquity, unrighteousness, evil. And it's... Uh, clear that the Hebrew word 202, which uh, has been translated as force, would be better translated as iniquity or wickedness rather than force. Now let's look at the meaning of the Hebrew word sharir, which is the word 
translated navel in the same verse. Forces in his navel. In the original sense, this word uh, sharir, which is translated navel, uh, is a cord, a sinew. Uh, and when we, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, when we look up the root from which it comes, we find out that this word, because that's the only place that's translated navel, the only place in all the scripture that's translated navel is right here in, in this verse of, of Job 40. And the root means to be hostile, an enemy. So let's read this verse with a new understanding of what God is trying to tell us about this beast, which he wants Job and us to know is beyond our control. This is how the verse appears in the King James again. Lo, his, forces in his, his strength is in his loins and his forces in the navel of his belly. But knowing what we know now about On and Sharir, let's uh, look at what it actually should say. It should say, Lo, his strength is in his loins and the iniquity of his hostility is in his belly. Now, hostility is enmity. And now we have a a verse that's in complete accord with the beast which is the carnal mind of all men and which is hostile towards God whose God is his belly and he just wants to serve himself Ecclesiastes 3.18 reveals to us I said in my heart concerning the state of the sons of man that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts and because the carnal of Romans 8 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In Philippians 3, I'm just going to read verse 19 there. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame. They glory, we glory, in our own shame as behemoth, which we all are in our own time. Now this is the same beast which was the last greatest beast of Daniel 7. Same, same point being made. While all the other beasts are beasts with which we're all familiar, and they're described to us, this particular beast, like the beasts uh, God tells us of uh, in Job, this beast in Daniel 7 is like the beast here in Job, is simply described as dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. That's what God is saying to Job about behemoth. And that's what he says in, in Daniel 7 about this fourth beast. So, uh, this beast, like all beasts, are revealed in Scripture to be the seed of the great red dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and the man of sin. Let's look at Daniel 7 and, and Revelation 17, uh, 13 so we can get the point. Daniel 7, verse 7. After this I, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now there's the connection that lets us know what this is all about. Because there's only one other place in Scripture where we see a beast with ten horns, and that's in Revelation 13. I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And this beast just happens to be just like the beasts of Revelation. Same beasts, only all in one beast. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet was the feet of a bear. His mouth was the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, 
that's the fourth beast there that's not described back there. Gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and the world, the whole world, all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is able, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? Now that verse right there is telling us that we, in effect, by worshipping ourselves, are worshipping the dragon. This beast is different from all the beasts that were before it in Daniel 7, simply because this beast has the same ten horns, as the composite beast of Revelation, which devoured all the beasts before it. In other words, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome are all revealed to be the same one beast, our old first man, Adam. Only he's here in his most powerful form, in his mature, ultimate blossom, so to speak. And there appeared uh, Revelation 12, verse 3, just to make the point of who this dragon is. There appeared another wonder in heaven, great, uh, and, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And then skipping down to verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great red dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. All the same thing, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, we've got a, a big help right there in understanding what we're dealing with here in the uh, book of Job. So, God is telling us through Job that when the devil empowers the beast within us, we become behemoth and are seven times worse because we are being given much more of the power, the seat, and great authority, which is granted us by the great red dragon. And remember, the dragon gives the beast his authority and power and seat. And you're worshiping the beast, or the dragon, when you worship the beast, which we all are. If you can keep that in mind, all of this will come together. Matthew 12, verse 43. When, when the unclean spirit has gone out of him, and he walks through, he, the unclean spirit, draws, walks through dry places, Seeking rest and finds none. Dry places is not where Behemoth wants to be. He wants to be in the marshy, wet areas. Then he says, I will return to my house from whence I came out. And when he comes, he finds it empty and swept and garnished. Then goes he and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be into this wicked generation. This wicked generation is you and me in our time. The beast the Lord chose as an ultimate type of the beast of the dry land is one that was comfortable in the waters of the rivers and swamps of the earth, as well as the higher grounds. But this physical beast, physical I'm talking about, the physical type that we're being given here no longer exists in, in life, it's, it's except in fossil form. And we can glean that from the very next verse. He moves his tail like a cedar, and the sinews of his bones are wrapped together. Now, first part of that verse is fine, the last part is terrible, but we'll get to that. Let's deal with the first part first. The commentators all try to convince us that this is either an elephant or a hippopotamus. Nobody's willing to 
acknowledge that the dinosaurs lived on earth with man. But even as they do this, they all acknowledge that a tail like a cedar doesn't really describe the tiny little tails that you find on a great uh, elephant or, or a hippopotamus. <laughs> they just make it work, you know, in, in their uh, obstinance, and their blindness, I should say. But when we free ourselves from the lie of the theory of evolution and the false doctrine known as the gap theory, which teaches that men and dinosaurs didn't live together, uh, and that there are millions or even billions of years between the first and second verses of Genesis 1, then we're able to receive the truth, which is clearly stated by the Holy Spirit that this beast had a tail like a cedar, not like a rope. Uh, now here's a, a quote from Wikipedia. Some basic information about an animal which answers to the Lord's description of this great beast in every way. It's as, as far as is known by mankind, the largest and most powerful mammal to have ever been on dry land on the earth. And it's called Brachiosaurus. And here's what it says about it. Most size estimates of Brachiosaurus are actually from the African form. Over the years, the mass of uh, Altothorax has been estimated at 43.9 metric tons. And that's 48.4 short tons, which, you know, metric, of course, is for the rest of the world and 48, I mean, uh, short tons is for the United States. And most recently, they've reduced it to 28.7 metric tons, 31 short tons. The length of Brachiosaurus is 26 meters, or for us Americans, 85 feet. Now, this beast stood at least 22 feet tall. And I'm sorry I don't have the metric there for you, you um, Amer uh, people who aren't in America. But uh, it, was, it was much higher than an elephant, or even a giraffe for that matter. <clears throat> now, here, just for the sake of comparison, is what Wikipedia tells us about the elephant. The African savanna or bush elephant is the largest living animal weighing about 16 1,500 pounds, or eight and a quarter tons, standing 10 to 13 feet tall, which is three to four meters, at the shoulder. Now, the Lord tells Job this creature was made along with mankind. That would have been on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 1.25, God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind. They're after their kind. He doesn't say they evolved from one kind to the next. <coughs> Humans are one kind and apes are another kind and they do not mix and never have. And, and God set that law in motion. And everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind, God saw that it was good. God said, let us make man in our own image, same day, the sixth day, after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now that's consistent with Exodus 20 verse 11, which as we will see states that everything in heaven and earth was created in six literal 24 hour days about 6,000 years ago. Now it will take time to, I will take the time to deal with this false gap theory simply because it's so universally accepted by the churches of Babylon. 
So let's just read Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, where they claim this gap of millions or billions of years exists. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. Now you read that in, without this false doctrine in mind, and it just sounds like God started out with a ball of mud and, and pushed the land up out of the water and you know, went about in six days to complete what he was doing, which is actually what happened. But it's argued by the, the uh, evolutionists and the, uh, what do you call the, the effort to put, the, uh, theistic evolutionists, that uh, the word here translated was, should have been translated become. It's the Hebrew word hayah. And it's also argued that the earth was initially created just, I guess, uh, God just said, let everything be, and it just was pristine and perfect immediately, but just populated by dinosaurs with no humans around for millions and who knows, billions of years, before Satan rebelled against God, was cast down to the earth out of heaven in such a violent manner that the earth, which had been created to be inhabited by dinosaurs, as we'll, we'll see how they reason that, was completely destroyed and brought brought to be, came to be, without form and void. That's the argument. That's the theory. That's the doctrine. And it's based upon this verse right here. Isaiah 45, 18. Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens and the earth, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he established it. He created it not in vain. Tohu. Same word translated without form in Genesis 1, 2. He formed it to be inhabited. You know, you can create the earth not in Tohu, in uh, Take seven days to do it without taking billions of years to do that. But anyway, let's just go along with their argument here for a minute. It's reasoned that since we are told in Isaiah 45, 18 that he created it not in Tokyo, then there must of necessity be a long, undetermined period of time which transpired between verses 1 and 2. Now, what spiritual or, or physical lesson you and I are to glean from such a, an event which supposedly took place before Adam was even created is never mentioned because of course there is no lesson to be learned from it. The truth is that the this is all nothing but an insidious attempt by the adversary through many people to integrate and mix scripture together with the godless theory of evolution. The fact is that these two are the Bible and evolution are irreconcilable. Scripture simply contradicts the godless theory of evolution at every turn. Now here is the true biblical doctrine concerning creation of the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. Exodus 20 verse 11. I would urge you all to memorize this verse. Put it in your working scriptural vocabulary. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. There it is. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. Now it could be reasoned that the word days in Exodus 20 verse 11 uh, in six days could be understood in the sense of the, of the day of the Lord and not to be taken as six literal 24 hour days. But since the Holy Spirit has six times qualified each of those days as consisting of an evening and a morning 
because it's qualified, we have no reason to believe that these six days are anything other than a literal 24-hour day. I'm just going to give you one instance, you know, that says this after virtually every day. But we'll just read the sixth day. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But he said the same thing after every day. He created something on that day, and it says the evening and the morning were the first, second, third, fourth. So we add to this the fact that we're clearly told it was done suddenly uh, here in Isaiah 48.3. And that word suddenly is defined by Strong's as instantly. And we know that God did not need millions or even billions of years to evolve an egg without a hen. He simply spoke the mature hen into existence along with a mature rooster so the species could reproduce itself. Now here's just how quickly God himself describes the pace at which he created the earth and the heavens and the seas and all that in them is. Isaiah 48, 31. It'd be nice if... Where's that other verse I just quoted out of Isaiah? Back up and let's look at that. That was Isaiah 48, 2, wasn't it? Was it? No, 45. 45, 18. <laughs> anyway, it's not that far apart. He says, I have declared the former things from the beginning and they went forth out of my mouth. And I showed them. I did them suddenly and they came to pass. That's the pace at which he says he did it. Now you look up that word suddenly and the definition is instantly. Unless there be any doubt how this word is used in scripture. I've got the, the uh, all the entries listed right here. Now it appears 25 times and out of those 25 times it's translated suddenly, 22. Sudden, singular, you know, without not the adverb form, but the verb form, two times and straightway once so you know it's, it's not got the it's not got the uh, sense of taking very much time now here's just one verse which demonstrates the meaning and tone of this word Joshua 11 verse 7 so Joshua came and they're 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 at war and they're, they're the the enemy is fleeing and it says so Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Miram suddenly and fell upon them. Now, a military maneuver is, not, is, is carried out instantly so as to surprise the enemy. You don't wait for them to die out, of, die out of natural causes over millions and billions of years. God did not need millions or billions of years to learn, as some people would have you believe, uh, the, to, to, to learn the source of uh, how to... Uh, speak creation into existence in six literal days. I mean, he just spoke it, and it happened. He doesn't need to learn anything. He just says it. God himself is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He doesn't need to consult anybody. He doesn't need to take time to figure things out. He is the things he's making that we figure out. He doesn't consult with anybody or learn anything. That's the very point he's making to us through this account and this experience of Job. And I'm going to read it again. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. <clears throat> and in Isaiah 48.3, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth out of my mouth. I showed them. I did them suddenly. And they came to pass. Now, if indeed the Hebrew word hayah is to be translated as, uh, which is translated as was in Genesis 1-2, should have been translated became, or came to be, 
in the sense of the earth eventually, over a long period of time, came to be without form and void, then we would also have to conclude that Adam and Eve were not created naked, but eventually, over a long period of time, came to be naked. Because of this verse in the very next chapter, where we see the same word, Hayah, is used again. Genesis 2.25 And they were, the Hebrew word there is Hayah, both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now here's Strong's definition of the word Hayah. This, this is going to be very revealing. It simply means to exist. And, uh, you know, it is used in the sense of becoming or coming to pass. But it just means exist. That's the meaning of it. Just so we're all aware of it, it's the very same word God gave to Moses in answer to Moses. The same word for his name when Moses asked, who, who will I tell them sent me to deliver Israel out of bondage? There's that exchange between God and uh, the Lord, I should say, and, and Moses. Exodus three thirteen and 14. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers, of your fathers, has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What will I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children, I am has sent you. Every one of those I am's is the Hebrew word Hayah. The earth was, they were. Hayah, Hayah. You and I are coming to be what Christ is. We Hayah Christ. Christ came to be the flesh, which we are. Then he returned to the glory which he had emptied himself of. None of this uh, takes millions or billions of years. John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Philippians 2, 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of the servant, being made in the likeness of men. Now, in the last half of this verse, the word which translators have rendered as stones is literally the Hebrew word for fear. Let's look at this verse again before we discuss the, the word. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. Now the word, the Hebrew word and its definition according to, uh, and I'm talking about the word stones here, is pakad. And uh, according to Strong's, it is the same as 63. Its, it's number is 6344, and he says it's the same as 6343. And yet he defines it as a testicle. And so the only place in all the Old Testament where this word is rendered as stones and you know defined as a testicle is right here in the 17th verse of the 40th chapter. And once again, when we look up the root, we find that it is translated, it appears many more times and is translated in an entirely different way. It appears 48 times and it's always, out of those 48, it's translated fear 41 times. Dread three times, dreadful one. So, it has nothing to do with testicles. Whether it's assigned 643, 6343 or 6344, it has nothing to do with testicles. It has everything to do with fear and terror, which is inflicted upon us by our own beastly behemoth. So a much better translation of this verse would be, the sinews of his terror are wrapped together. That's the last half of that verse. 
meaning the parts of behemoth which are given him to inspire fear. Who we fear is who we will worship and obey. Either we'll worship and obey God or we'll worship and obey the beast within us. Now here's what we're instructed to do. Ecclesiastes uh, 12 verse 13. Let us consider the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. But this is the whole duty of man. The word duty isn't there. It's just this is the whole man. Yet this is what we're told we will do. Revelation 13 4. They worship the beast, the dragon which gave power, and the dragon which gave power to the beast. Uh, and they worship the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him?" That's just like Paul in Romans seven saying, "I can't overcome sin in me. It's, it, it operates by a law that's in my members." No one, or at least very few indeed, see themselves as worshiping the dragon. Yet from God's perspective, when we worship and please the beast within us, we're worshiping and pleasing the dragon. Let's look at the last half of this verse as it should have been translated. Instead of, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, what, what, how was it worded? Stones. The stones of his, go back up just a little, yeah. I mean, let me let me let me read it like it was, so you'll get the contrast here. Yeah, it's, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. Now let's go back down and read it how it should be. The sinews of his terror are wrapped together. Now that is the proper way that verse should have been. If we just take the root word, you know, the way it appears everywhere, but this one place for both of those words. The sinews of his terror are wrapped together. Now remember, this means parts of behemoth which are given him to inspire terror. Self-worship is a great and powerful beast which is common to all flesh. And it is wrapped around us to the point of inspiring terror and choking out the life of the spirit within all of us. So when we see the Hebrew word translated wrapped here in Job 40 verse 17... And we see it translated as wreathed in the only other place where we'll find this word in the Old Testament. We get a much clearer understanding of the point the Lord is making when he tells us the sinews of his terrors are wrapped together. Here's where the word uh, wrapped appears. Uh, And these verses speak of the self-righteous Job and all of us who condemn God for his fierce anger. Now this is Lamentations. Jeremiah is writing this, the prophet Jeremiah. And yet it sounds so much like Job. He says in, 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 Jerem- in Lamentation 1, verses 12 through 14, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow. Doesn't that sound like Job? Which is done to me, wherewith the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Sounds just like Job. From above has he sent fire into my bones, and it prevailed against them. He has spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate. And faint all the day long. That's our dying daily that we just so resent in the natural man. Lamentations 1.14. The yoke of my transgression is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come upon my neck. He has made my strength to fall. The Lord has delivered me into their hands from whom I am not able to rise up. And that's what the Lord does to our old man. He destroys him. Here's just how strong the Lord tells us this this beast is. Verses 18 and 19. His bones are strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. 
Now, those are the two hardest, strongest metals known to mankind in the Old Testament. And uh, they, they are base metals. They are not gold and silver. He is the chief of the ways of God. Wow. How can he have bones like iron and brass and, and be chief of the ways of God? Well, we're going to see. He that made him can make his sword approach unto him. The phrase, he is the chief of the ways of God, has led some commentators to erroneously conclude that uh, behemoth is a type of Christ. And when many discover that the word uh, Rashith is the word that's translated chief here, uh, and it's the same word that's translated uh, first fruits in Leviticus 23 and and uh, the beginning in Genesis 1.1, both referring to Christ, then it becomes understandable how so many can become confused concerning how this word Rashith can be used in different ways. Let me give you Genesis 1.1 and Leviticus 23.10 so, so you can understand where you and I ourselves could easily become misled about this if we didn't understand the principles of how to understand God's word. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, which is the word Rashith, God created the heavens and the earth. In Leviticus 23.10, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. Now, you know, we, we know that uh, Christ is the first fruit, the resheath. We know that Christ is the beginning, the resheath. So, we, you know, that all makes sense. The conclusion, the conclusion that some arrive at, that uh, behemoth is a type of Christ, comes from knowing that this word is translated chief, uh, literally here means first, whether in sense of order or in sense of rank, but they don't understand that it can also have a negative or sense in order or rank. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the principle. And I'm going to give you the example of where it's negatively used. Some of them said he casts out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Now, that's the same thought. It's the Greek, of course, but it's the same thought as, as behemoth being the, the uh, how, how was it worded? Back up and let me read that again. He is chief of the ways of God. Behemoth. That's, that's Beelzebub is chief of the devils. It's the same sense. So, if we do not understand one of the main principles of the word of God, and thereby one of the characters of God himself, it becomes easy to misunderstand almost any word of scripture. And that principle is that it's, there's a positive and a negative application for every verse of Scripture. And the way we know this is simply because the cloud that led Israel out of Egypt was darkness to those on the one side of the cloud and light to the others who were on the other side. In other words, it's your perspective of God. If you're, on the, if you're seeing him from a negative sense, that's how he's going to be. And if you see him from a light sense, a, a good sense, that's how he's going to be. And he says that. The cloud was Christ, you know, and we, we've got the scriptures that bring that out. Exodus 14.20 It, the cloud, came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud of darkness to them. It gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. God's word separates those who don't understand him from those who do. 
John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that's that's the Word that is darkness to them and light to these. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The words. What does he mean when he says the Spirit quickens? The words that I speak to you, they are Spirit and they are life. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. Moreover, brethren, I would that you should not be ignorant would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the character of this cloud, which is Christ, the word of God, is that he creates both light and darkness. He creates both good and evil, as the word itself tells us is so. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made all things for himself. The Lord made all things. Yes, even the wicked the darkness for the day of evil. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none but me. I am the Lord God. There is none else. I form the light and the darkness. Satan didn't create the darkness and God the light. God is the only one that creates anything. And he creates them both. I make peace and I create evil. I the Lord do all these things. Knowing this principle of God's word and knowing this characteristic of Christ and the Father make clear how the Hebrew word of a sheath can be used both of Christ, the first fruit, and behemoth, the chief of the beasts. Job 40, verse 20. Surely the mountains bring forth food, and all where all the beasts of the field bring him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. The mountains bring him forth where the beasts play, according to our Lord means the kingdoms of this world, that's the mountains, on whom behemoth dines and nourished. Is nourished. We know this because we're told that the mountains are kingdoms and, and the field is the world. Now here's the mind. That, uh, this is Revelation 17 verses 9 and 10. Here's the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is not. One is and the other is not yet come. And when he comes he will continue a short space. Ezekiel 37 22. And I will make them one nation, speaking of Israel and, and Judah, in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be to them, and they shall be no more. Two nations, two mountains. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore. Matthew 13, verse 38. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. How by knowing what our Lord reveals to us, that the field is the world, that kingdoms are mountains, we can get a lot more out of Scripture if we keep those things in mind as we read Scripture. The beasts play in the field together because the world loves its own. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the field, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And you can't play in the field with the beasts. Job 40, verse 21 and 22. He lies under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and the fins. The shady trees cover him with their shadow and the willows of the brook compass him about. Now this is where we are as Job at the beginning of our experience while we have our hedge about us. And we're being blessed in the work of our hands and becoming rich and graced with goods and having need of nothing. That's, that's him lying under the shady trees and the covert of the reed and the shady trees covering with their shadow and the willows of the brook comes to back. It sounds so good. And it is good for us as a beast. 
It's not good for our new man, but it's good for our old man. He loves it. Look at this. Job 1, 9 and 10. Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for naught? You've made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his substance has increased in the land. God doesn't deny that he creates good and evil. He's the one that says he does that, but he labels it as the evil that it is. Revelation 3.17 Because you said I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. God takes the credit for that too. He works all things. Behemoth, being at home in the water, symbolizes the flesh. Being at home in the, in the and us being at home in the flesh. Notice how much the king of Egypt and the Assyrian have in common with, with Behemoth. <coughs> this is revealed to us in Ezekiel <coughs> 31, verses 2 through 7. Son of man, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude. Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, the Assyrian was like a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches. He's saying these two kings are alike. With a shadowing shroud, just like Behemoth there loves it. Of a high stature. And his top was among the thick boughs. The waters made him great. Behemoth loves to be in the waters. The deep set him up on high and her rivers running about his plants, and sent out her little rivers unto all the trees of the field. The field is the world. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, the world. His boughs were multiplied. His branches became long because of the multitude of waters where he shot forth, when he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their boughs, their nests in his boughs, and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young. And under his shadow dwelt all the great nations. Thus was he fair in his greatness, and the length of his branches, for his root was by great waters. The harlot sits on many waters. We'll be reading that. So scripturally, the king of Egypt, the Assyrian, and Behemoth are all made great, because their root is by great waters. Which waters, we are told, are peoples, nations, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. Right here in Revelation 17, 15. He said to me, the, all, the waters you saw where the horse sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. In other words, this is exactly what Satan promised to give to Christ if Christ would only bow down and worship him. Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And says unto him, All these will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All Satan is asking Christ to do is to give in to the desire of his own flesh to avoid the burdens of the cross. If Christ had just refused to obey his Father, He could have avoided having to die to self. Christ could not avoid the burdens of the cross simply because God gave not his spirit by measure to him, enabling Christ to fulfill his Father's will. John 3, verse 34, For he whom you sent speaks the words of God, for God gives not his spirit by measure to him. Now let's look at verse 43. He drinks up a river, 
and haste not. He trusts that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. Behemoth within us is fearless and drinks up a river and hastes not, simply because he knows he has no one who can make war with him. Revelation 13.4 again, they worshipped the dragon and they gave power to the beast and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's the same thing as saying behemoth trusts he can drop a river Jordan into his mouth, but his thirst or his appetite are never satisfied. <clears throat> All the labor of man, behemoth, is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not filled. And Haggai 1.6 You've sown much, you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe, but there's no warmth. He that, and he that earns wages, earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Waters, which are not life-giving waters, never satisfy our thirst. And bread, thirst, and bread, which is not the bread of life, never satisfies our hunger. Job, I mean, John 14 John 4.14 Whoso drinks the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be a well of uh, water springing up into everlasting life. And John 6.35 Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. And our last verse, Behemoth, is a type of Job and of us who believes many lives and has a carnal view of life. Therefore, the truths God is bringing to us and to Job appear to be nothing less than a snare from Behemoth's perspective. So in reality, the blessings of God, you know, his raising up the storm and bringing us to our wits in, are received by our natural old man, Job in us, as a curse. Those blessings, those chastenings, were the loss of all that Job and we treasure in this world. And that was described for us in chapters 1 and 2. I mean, he lost everything, and then he lost, I mean, he, he was in misery with those boils. He lost everything, even his health. In Job 40, verse 24, he takes it, the waters, which give him life. With his eyes, his nostrils pierces through the snares. He, he does not consider it a blessing at all, in other words. Behemoth, who is nothing more than a type of the harlot of the book of Revelation, is arrogant and thinks he has nothing to fear. His nose pierces through snares. He considers the very blessings that God gives him to be nothing but snares. Revelation 18.7 how, how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously so much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Both Behemoth and this harlot think they can sin and satisfy the flesh without regard to the consequences of doing so. Nevertheless, the truth remains. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also that shall he also reap. So that's our that's our lesson on behemoth. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be admonished by the Lord 
concerning another dreadful beast which is beyond our control. And this beast is not a beast which we find on dry land. This beast is called Leviathan and he lives in the waters of the sea.